0: You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. Today's episode, The Very Last Minute.
1: When he was only a year old, the poet Gregory Corso's mother disappeared. She was just 17, and his father told him that she deserted them Choosing to return to her native country, Italy. His father proved equally unreliable, and so Gregory spent the next 11 years in foster care. His father rarely visited, and when he did, it was awful. I'd spill jello, and the foster home people would beat me, Gregory would later say. Then my father would visit, and he'd beat me again. Pretty soon, Gregory became a homeless child on the streets of New York. He slept in subways in the winter and on rooftops in the summer. At 13, someone asked him to deliver a toaster, and while on the way, a passerby offered him money for it. Gregory took the money and used it to see The Song of Bernadette, a film about Saint Bernadette and the Virgin Mary. On returning from the movie, the police apprehended him. Gregory claimed he'd been seeking a miracle, namely, to find his mother. Arrested for petty larceny, he was sent to New York's infamous jail, the Tombs. Even though he was only 13 years old, he was celled right next to a criminally insane murderer who had stabbed his wife with a screwdriver. No one would post his $50 bond, and with his mother missing and unable to make bail, he remained in the Tombs. For the next few years, Gregory was in and out of reform schools, orphanages, mental institutions, and more prisons, it was during his three-year sentence at Danamora that he started reading voraciously everything he could get his hands on. He would later say that it was Danamora that made him a poet. Here he is reading the very first poem he ever wrote. He was 16 years old when he wrote it, and it was about his mother. My mother hates the sea, my sea especially. I warned her not to, was all I could do. A year later, the Theater. <laughs> <laughs> Along with Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac, Gregory Corso formed the core group of writers known as the Beats. Their writing inspired artists like Bob Dylan and fueled the 60s counterculture. And as it did, Gregory, who became known as the bad boy of the Beat generation, struggled with alcohol and heavy drug addiction. To pay for drugs, he'd sometimes sell his poetry notebooks to universities for $200 apiece, saying that the good poems stayed in his head anyway. He also said that all the drug use was an attempt to mask the pain of having been abandoned. After Ginsburg's death in 1997, Gregory became depressed and despondent. Filmmaker Gustav Reininger who was making a documentary about Gregory at the time, convinced him to go on the road to retrace the early days of the Beats in Europe. And while in Venice, Gregory expressed his lifelong sadness about not having a mother. He became curious about where in Italy his mother might be buried, and Reininger, thinking it might be a good scene in his movie, and as a surprise for Gregory, started searching for her Italian burial place. But the thing was, There was no grave. Reininger found out that Gregory's mother was still alive. Not only that, but she wasn't even in Italy. She was in Trenton, New Jersey, just across the river from where Gregory lived most of his life. 67 years after their separation, Gregory finally got to meet his mother. Michelina Corso worked as a waitress in a sandwich shop. And at their very first meeting she explained that when she left gregory she'd been beaten almost fatally all her front teeth were punched out by gregory's father she left out of fear for her life but all the while she never stopped looking for gregory his father had blocked all records of his whereabouts and she was too poor to hire a lawyer despite the decades apart gregory and his mother quickly developed a close relationship spending hours chatting on the phone and since they both loved to gamble, taking vacations together to Atlantic City. Gregory always lost, but his mother, luckier than him, would stake him with her winnings. A fundamental truth he'd believed all his life that he was abandoned and unloved, a fact he lived with every day of his life, was now, in his late sixties, no longer true at all. And with that shift, he was finally allowed to heal. Gregory said that meeting his mother brought his life full circle. He even began to work productively on a new, long-delayed volume of poetry. Not long afterwards, though, he discovered he had prostate cancer, and in 2001, at the age of 70, Gregory Corso died. The epitaph on his tombstone was taken from one of his poems and recalls the imagery of his very first poem about his mother and the sea. Spirit is life, it flows through the death of me, endlessly, like a river unafraid of becoming the sea. The sea that had first swept his mother away had finally swept her back, and a life that felt set for one course, in the very last moments, changed direction. I think I like thinking about Gregory Corso's life because it reminds me that a life isn't over until it's over. There's always this possibility that you can pull a 180, even on your deathbed. At the very last minute, you can renounce it all, proclaim the whole thing one giant misstep, your whole life an ironic fluke. For me, this thought takes the pressure off. It turns all of our mistakes into mere blooper reel material something for the closing credits. We are creatures that exist in time, creatures of narrative, and the final act of our lives is a chance to eclipse what's come before. But in the same way that our final moments might define and redeem the whole, thinking too much upon the last moments of life, upon the approaching end, can fill us with anxiety, particularly when we think about the big end, the end of all
2: ends. I guess everybody is concerned about their own mortality, but they're comforted by the fact that even when they're dead, something lingers on. But the idea that nothing carries on, that the entire universe is ultimately destined to disappear, can be deeply unsettling for people.
1: Slightly unsettling. Paul Davies is a cosmologist and the author of The Last Three Minutes, Conjectures About the Ultimate Fate of the Universe, I spoke to him recently about the possible scenarios for the end of it all.
2: Well, on a large scale, we know that the universe is expanding and the issue for a long time has been, is it going to go on expanding forever or will it at some stage turn around and start to contract? And this leads to four different versions of the way that the universe might end. One of them is that indeed it will one day begin to contract and then it would do so faster and faster and it would end up in what is popularly called the big crunch which is a bit like the big bang but in reverse so everything would be squashed together uh, until eventually this shrinkage of the universe would turn into wholesale collapse it's the end not just of matter and energy and everything contained in the universe but even space and time as well literally the whole show goes off the road now that particular big crunch model is a little bit out of favor at the moment Uh, if the universe goes on expanding forever then it can do so in a number of different ways. One is continually slowing, but never turning around. Uh, The other is that it may expand at an accelerating rate. And the third is often called the big rip. And what happens there is not only does the rate of the universe expansion accelerate, but even the rate of the acceleration accelerates and so uh, what happens there is that at a finite time in the future the universe reaches a point where it's expanding infinitely fast and there will come a time when planets would be ripped apart and then molecules and then atoms and then nuclei and finally the fabric of space and time itself will be ripped apart. So these are four different ways that the universe might end on a gross scale. And I have to say right at the outset that none of these things is gonna be happening like next week, uh, that they are all billions of years down the track, so we don't have any immediate worries. But either way, the far future does look a bit bleak.
1: When you say space and time would cease to exist, what, what would we be left with then exactly? Uh, is it even possible for us to, to fathom that kind of nothingness?
2: The problem of nothing is a very acute one and it's true that in ordinary conversation people just don't get it Uh, and if you say well the universe began from nothing, they think you mean from empty space, some physical state of nothingness there, there's this misconception that the Big Bang was the explosion of some sort of lump of something in a pre-existing void. And that's not at all how we envisage it. We envisage it as the origin of space and time as well. So there was no time before the Big Bang and there will be no time after the Big Crunch. Stephen Hawking expressed it very eloquently. He said, asking what happened before the Big Bang is like asking what lies north of the North Pole. The answer is nothing, not because there's a mysterious land of nothingness, north of the North Pole, but because there ain't no such place as north of the North Pole. It simply doesn't exist. And so that's the sense in which we talk about the universe originating from nothing, no space, no time, no matter, no energy, no thing.
1: If that state of nothingness were imminently upon us, would we be able to tell? I mean, if this minute right here was the last minute of the universe's existence, would there be some kind of sign?
2: Well, it's interesting you should uh, raise that because there is, in fact, a fifth scenario that I didn't mention because it's a little bit obscure. But there's another way in which the universe, at least as we know it, could come to an abrupt end. Uh, In a nutshell, it's possible that an instability somewhere in the universe would create like a bubble uh, that would expand at very close to the speed of light. And what's inside that bubble is basically... Wreckage. It uh, would not sustain any of the structures or objects that we see around us in the universe. And the point about the speed of light is it's the fastest speed in the universe. So nothing can forewarn you that this bubble is coming. And so it could hit us at any time and everything, including the subatomic particles out of which matter is made, would in effect disintegrate in a flash. Could happen at any time so that is another possible scenario a bit more of an alarming one that it could just all come to a shuddering halt with no warning
1: it, it could ha- it could happen anytime so you mean this could be the very last <laughs> moment right now oh yes or now
2: yeah
1: hmm. uh, of these various uh, scenarios for possible end of the universe have you a favorite One that you're rooting Uh, for? I
2: suppose that my favorite is the big crunch because I sort of feel then the universe will go through its cycle of birth, life and death. Because on the one hand, if you told me, well, the universe will go on forever and ever in more or less its present form, I would think, well, that's all a bit pointless. Uh, Nothing is ever accomplished. Um, On the other hand, if you tell me that the universe is uh, destined to end, that that looks uh, bleak as as well. But I I guess the choice here is between a universe that seems to be completely pointless uh, and one that might have a point to it, but it's going to be strictly limited in time. And uh, and I'm not sure either of these gives very much comfort (laughs) to individuals.
1: If, if it was the very last minute of the universe, how would you want to spend it? I'll let your mother go for it. Uh,
0: being with my family and everybody happy and healthy and getting along and being well.
1: Keeping in mind the universe is coming to an end.
0: Well, still I would want that. Yeah? Yeah. I would just like to, to at least go happy.
1: <laughs> Even if it was only going to be for a minute, you would want that minute to be good. Yes dad what 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 do you i like nice music playing i'd like to be at peace i'd like to know that the end is coming but i'm going to accept it what what kind of music
0: uh do-wop music no so not for me you'd
1: want to have do-wop music mom rock no and roll, yeah. not do-wop well but let's say you had to agree on the music with dad yeah. And what can i do yeah i could compromise.
0: Oh, i'd like to hear um oh, when me. you walk out the door i don't need you anymore forget that song
1: Maybe you're thinking of the disco song, I Will Survive.
0: Yes, that's it. Oh. I couldn't think of it. It was driving me crazy for weeks. <laughs> I will survive. Yeah.
1: That's kind of a funny song to, to, to go out on if Isn't you think it about it. Isn't kind of a it.
3: woman's movement kind of song?
0: I don't it? care. I just like it.
1: That's what I figured.
0: Don't look too deep. No. But, I mean, I the, lyric, like
1: the lyrics are, are I will survive, and it's kind of about not surviving. It's about the end of everything.
0: You know what, Jonathan? I don't care about the lyrics. I just care about the beat and the music, and I just feel like dancing. Or rock around the clock tonight. We're going to nah, rock, rock, nah, rock. No, that isn't what They're I want to hear daylight. my last
3: this minute. Oh, know.
0: yeah, I want to go out dancing.
3: No, no. I want to hear Chicago.
0: Yeah, that's
3: okay. Uh, Stevie Wonder, you know, stuff like that. Beautiful stuff.
1: Okay, hang on a second. Yeah. I think maybe you're both not appreciating the gravity of the situation, though. You know, I mean, this would be this would be the end of, of everything.
3: Well, what can I do, Johnny, if I I still want to hear what I enjoy. You know what I like? Backstreet Boys,
1: but you don't think that the situation would call for for a little gravitas, maybe like
3: Beethoven? I uh, I don't or, know.
0: Yuck!
1: Mass in B minor by Bach. Ugh.
0: I want to dance. We could sing celebration, <laughs> but come on. Yes, we're gonna have a good time. We're gonna have some fun. <laughs> <laughs>
4: This universe, as we know it, may dissolve or erupt or draw to a close. But that doesn't mean life is over. You know, the belief would be that other universes arise.
1: So you don't think that if the universe were to end, we'd be left with nothingness?
4: Um, it's funny because the word nothingness or voidness is often associated with Buddhism. But um, one of the things that Buddha talked about explicitly was avoiding extremes. And one of the extremes that he was avoiding was that of nihilism, you know, and just that that sense of kind of a a bleak nothingness. And from that point of view, from the Buddhist point of view, you can't have absolutely nothing.
1: There is always something.
4: There's always something. But certainly Buddhism rests upon this realization of the continually changing nature of everything, that what we count on as being so solid from moment to moment, this body... Um, relationships, uh, our minds. When we actually look, we see it. in some way it's like we're dying and being reborn in every moment. So w- we have to find comfort not in the idea of stability or or permanence, but more in that continuity of birth and death and birth and death.
1: But how do we how do we reconcile ourselves with the death part of the cycle? Why why do we struggle so much with endings?
4: I think the culture that most of us are conditioned by, the cultures that most of us are conditioned by, encourage, you know, seizing some kind of totem against change and against death and feeling that if we only acquire enough or we possess enough or if we think, okay, there's going to be something we can hold on to forever and we'll be perfectly happy because it will never change and I will never change and that's going to give me security that's going to give me peace and it's hopeless and so the the reflection on on death and rebirth is is meant to understand help us understand that everything we own everything we are is is in flux that it's constantly changing and that it's almost like a a river that can flow
1: so if we were to think of time as being like a river then we don't really need to worry about things like beginnings and endings.
4: Within the context of the Buddhist teaching, the universe has no beginning, and that things exist in in a different way than necessarily only through linear time. So since beginning was time, we've all died and been reborn and died and been reborn, and we've all played every role with one another. We've all been one another's children and parents and saviors and... We've harmed one another and helped one another. and so there there is no one that exists with whom we are not in some way intimately connected. and we've also all done everything. So you know there's not uh, just this kind of dissolution into nothingness into um, life ending. There is renewal
1: so in in spite of that belief in renewal, do you ever think about your final moments? do do you think you would approach your last minutes any differently than the minutes that that have preceded them?
4: Uh, I think about it quite a lot, and and,
1: uh,
4: I don't know that they can be all that different. I think that many people die very much in the spirit in which they've lived, whatever that might be. Um, But I think, and certainly a very big point in the Buddhist teaching is, like, don't wait you know, don't wait till the very end of your life to connect to the people that you care about or pay attention to what really means something to you. And it's like, don't wait.
0: We, we can do it right now.
1: Kurt Vonnegut once wrote... All moments, past, present, and future, always have existed, always will exist. It's just an illusion here on Earth that one moment follows another one, like beads on a string, and that once that moment is gone, it is gone forever. Maybe in the timeless ethereal realm, the realm beyond time, where present, past, and future is all one. We are all ages, all times at once, we are falling in love even as we break up. We are taking our first breath even as we die. We have learned everything, achieved everything already, and we are free. But for now, we exist in a universe burdened with chronology, and are all still victims of the incessant march of time. Jay go! Oh, hey, hey, Gregor. Happy birthday. Oh, th- I mean, it's not my birthday for another month or so, but, uh... Wow, thank you. You know, and I make it my personal
3: mission to call all my clients on their birthday, even though it's a little early.
1: Happy I, birthday. I am your only client.
3: The big 5-5. Five, five. How's that feel? I thought you were going to die before you hit 50 myself, but...
1: Okay, what do, you, what do you get 50? I'm turning 45. Oh,
3: no, I know you're turning 45. Wink, wink.
1: Gregor, I am not turning 55. You, you think I'm 10 years older than you? Whatever. I'm
3: not anyway, fit- Johnny,
1: I don't, know, I don't know what you're getting all upset for.
3: Well, I mean... I'm, I'm calling with an opportunity specifically for someone about to turn 55. It's a list in a magazine of people under 55 to watch. It's called 55 Under 55. We're squeaking you in underneath the 55 wire.
1: 55 Under 55. I mean, I've heard of like 30 Under 30 or something like that. The though.
3: only trick that remains for me as your agent is how to have you do something notable enough to get you on this list. We have one month. You, my friend, are the ball of clay. I'm the potter. I will make a bowl of you yet... And soon enough, I will serve breakfast cereal in you. And maybe you're not built to be a breakfast cereal bowl. Maybe someday your destiny is to be a chamber pot. Oh, that's beautiful. Or maybe it's to be one of those flat things that goes underneath a plant, so when you water it too much and the water pees out the bottom of the pot, it doesn't go on the floor. The point is, Uh I see something in you. Oh, thanks. You're not just a lump of clay, Johnny. Right. You're a ball of potential. Fifty-four and three-quarter-year-old washed-out ball of potential, just waiting to be molded. Oh, good. Now... Here are some ways I'm thinking we can get you on the list. Number one, mm-hmm. you have to marry Jessica Alba. Do you know Jessica Alba? Yes, the, the young starlet. Yeah, but do you know her personally? Because no. you've got to marry her, court her and marry her in the next 29 days.
1: Can that happen? No, it, I, I'd say no, it can't. Okay.
3: How do you feel about sustaining some serious injury that you overcome with a monumental heroic spirit? Like maybe you get your eyes torn out and you still learn to play the piano or something.
1: That, that's what would get me on the 55 under 55 list. If you could be uplifting.
3: None of your negative Nelly stuff. You've got to be like, best thing that ever happened to me. My agent's dog tore my eyes out. That's your big scheme for how to get me some ink. Have you ever read these big magazines? They always have some story. Like, one day I was a world-class skier. Then a shark ate my eyebrows off. Now I cannot connote surprise because I have no eyebrows. But still, I managed to be an off-Broadway
1: actor. What, what you're saying is my long career in radio doesn't count for anything.
3: What do you mean it doesn't count for anything? You get dental, right? Yes, I get dental. Maybe we smash all your teeth out and then we come up with some adversity story like, this man used to love corn on the cob and now he has to eat it with his feet or something like that. Okay,
1: listen to me. I'm not 55. I'm 45, okay? I will be turning 45. Johnny,
3: I don't know who you think you're talking to. I don't have to cut you in half and count your rings to know your age. I was with you in like 1993 when you dragged me to a Pearl Jam concert and it was your 45th birthday.
1: No, that's Im- I- I- If I was turning 45 then, I would be I would be turning 65 now.
3: Okay, even better. 65 under 65. And by the way, it's a lot less competitive to get on the 65 to watch under 65 list.
1: There is no such list. Look at
3: this guy. At 65, he finally made something of himself. His mother's finally proud of him. How do you- I-, I could get you on 75 under 75 tomorrow.
0: I'm not 75. I'm 45.
3: You were hot for a 75-year-old. I'm just saying.
1: On Wiretap today, you heard Paul Davies, director of Beyond, the Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science. For more, visit beyond.asu.edu. You also heard Buzz and Dina Goldstein, Gregor Ehrlich, and Sharon Salzberg, author of Real Happiness at Work, Meditations for Accomplishment, Achievement, and Peace. Wiretap is produced by Mira Birtwin-Tonic, Crystal Duhaime, and me. Jonathan Goldstein. Tune into Wiretap Saturdays at 3.30 and Thursday evenings at 11.30. You can also hear Wiretap across North America on Sirius XM. Subscribe to the free podcast at cbc.ca slash Wiretap, where you can also download the latest Wiretap ringtone.
0: When you walk out the door, I don't need you anymore.
1: Spit death in the eye with every ring of your phone.